Well, the USA, France and Britain are launching strikes on Syria. The so-called very liberal Justin Trudeau, the President of Canada, has gone on Twitter and announced his support of the bombing. People who can't find anything positive to say about Donald Trump are suddenly only too eager to voice support for the bombing of people far away who have children on threadbare, if any, evidence. And we are left feeling goddamn powerless to stop it. This is a re-upload, largely, of audio from a couple of years ago, from episode 19 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast, before most of you were fans of the show. I'm glad to have you here now, and out of a feeling of powerlessness, out of wanting to do something, I'm sharing this. This is about us and our freedom, and our peace, and what causing destruction abroad turns us into. Friedrich Nietzsche said, beware when you fight monsters, lest you become one. And I am damn scared that the West has become monstrous. Hello. And welcome to episode 19 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samroff, and, well, <laughs> it's just me this week. Tom Laird, my usual co-host, is away at the moment, so we might be comparatively short on banter. However, I have prepared something special for you this week. A lot of what I focus on in this show is economic education, and I think that's because... Well, it's because it's what I spend a lot of time studying at the moment and because I think the world really needs it. But economic policy is only a third of a political platform. I want to talk about what I perceive to be the two other thirds of a political platform. So I want to talk about war, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say foreign policy, but it would probably be more accurate to say war. And personal freedom or civil liberties and I want to talk about the relationship between war and civil liberties. In the UK and indeed in Scotland we have quite a unique tradition, a civil libertarian tradition. For example here we have a right to a trial by jury. In Europe they have a system where you go up before a judge or a group of judges. The burden of proof lies more with the prosecutor here than it does in Europe. Here, a policeman has to identify himself to you. In Europe, you have to identify yourself to a policeman. The Magna Carta and other documents that served as a constitution for the British Isles weren't just cobbled together by intellectuals who thought these rights were a good idea. These were rights that evolved organically under common law over a long period of time. These are the rights that people 
in this country saw as their own rights, like the right to challenge the terms of your imprisonment if you're imprisoned, like the right to a fair trial, like the presumption of innocence until proven guilty, and until recently, the right not to be tried again for the same charge following a legitimate acquittal, the right not to identify yourself to a police officer unless you're under suspicion, the police requiring a warrant to search your house, freedom of the press, the very idea that government should be limited under the law, which the framers of the American Constitution copied essentially from us. And other things are important too, like the fact that we don't torture, the idea that we extend basic dignity to even our most deplorable enemies. The point of that is to retain the higher ground, to remain moral, to not allow ourselves to become what we abhor when we fight it. These freedoms are worth fighting for. Those are our values. Those represent our integrity. Now, during a time of war, people have accepted certain suspensions of these freedoms. We allow governments greater secrecy, the use of lethal force, suspension of due process, and curtailments of freedom of speech. We might skip the ordinary democratic checks and balances, and we may detain enemy forces indefinitely, or at least until the conflict's over. We allow the government to do things that we usually wouldn't allow them to do in a time of war, because it's seen as admissible, maybe even necessary, when war is considered a temporary aberration. The trouble is that today, we're always at war. We're always at war. In a framework where a war could last a year, or five years, or maybe ten years, a law that states that enemy combatants can be detained for the duration of the conflict, maybe that makes sense. But what about during a conflict that could hypothetically go on forever, like the war on terror? What is so frustrating about the last 25 years of our foreign policy folly is that at the end of the Cold War, we basically, we'd run out of enemies. We didn't have an empire to consider. The Soviet threat, even if it was as serious as people in this country were told, and there are serious doubts about that, well, that was finished. We were at peace with every world power of any significance. We were on a friendly terms with our neighbours, and this is basically the golden opportunity that we had here in the UK to focus on restoring traditional freedoms that made the UK, some of them made you, the UK unique in Europe. If we'd gone down that line of minding our own business, if we'd become a Switzerland of the late 20th century, if we'd focused on setting a good example, I feel like we'd be a lot more prosperous and a lot more free. Instead, we fought war after war after war. Almost none of them have been in our national interest. Maybe none of them. Almost all of them 
have been attended by heavy losses of life, tax increase, and the sacrifice of liberty. And some of these conflicts are still justified. Our shameful participation in the first Gulf War in 1991, this was the beginning of this post-Cold War imperialism and meddling and these kinds of things that have actually since come back to bite us in the ass. In the first Gulf War, NATO forces bombed power stations and bridges that were just for civilian use. As a consequence, sewage treatment plants stopped functioning. Hospitals didn't get electricity. All manner, all number of Iraqi civilians died in unlit hospitals because of the bombing of these power plants. We, we sent the country back to the Stone Age. A hundred thousand Iraqi soldiers died. And we're told, okay, this was in response to Iraq invading Kuwait. Well, diplomatic options weren't really exhausted when NATO started bombing Iraq. In fact, the US ambassador, April Glaspie, you can Google this, gave the green light to Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait. She said, we have no opinion on your Arab-Arab conflicts, such as your dispute with Kuwait. She said that directly to Saddam Hussein, a matter of days before the first Gulf War began. A false testimony was given before the Congression on Human Rights Caucus on October the 10th, 1990, by a 15-year-old girl who pretended that after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, she'd witnessed Iraqi soldiers take babies out of incubators in Kuwaiti hospitals, take the incubators and leave the babies to die. It turned out that the woman giving the testimony was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. The whole thing was basically staged. She'd been coached to give that testimony. This is the lengths that they went to, to create war propaganda to get us in to Iraq. And at that time, you know, you didn't have YouTube, you didn't have Wikipedia, you couldn't look things up. So if something like that came on the television and someone said, well, that's just war propaganda, no one would have any way of proving or disproving that. The NATO bombing of Kosovo from 98 to 99 is often held up as the gold standard by people who believe in an interventionist foreign policy as proof of the potential efficacy of war for humanitarian purposes under the responsibility to protect. We were in, we were out, we stopped a genocide. But that's largely based on propaganda and fiction. People were told that anything between 100,000 and 500,000 Albanians were killed by Serbians. That Clinton and Blair were going into Serbia, into Kosovo, to prevent a genocide. None of those numbers have ever been substantiated. I've heard estimates of maybe somewhere between 3,500 and a little over 10,000 people killed in a conflict 
but most of them were Serbians. Most of them weren't Albanians. The Kosovo Liberation Army, who were the people that NATO went in to side with during their intervention in Serbia, they wanted independence from Serbia. They had links to Albanian organised crime and to radical Islamic groups. And they had actually conducted a number of repeated assaults on Serbians and Albanian civilians in the course of what was basically a civil war. What was happening there wasn't some unilateral action where the Serbian forces were oppressing the Albanian. There was a civil war going on. That's not how it was represented in the media. In fact, the majority of the horrible things that happened only happened after NATO started bombing in Serbia. After the bombings, then Serbians began expelling Albanians. But then after NATO went in, they sat and watched as the Albanians in Kosovo started attacking Serbian communities, they burnt down churches, they killed civilians, and then they drove the Serbs out of Kosovo, along with Croatians and Jews. And this was reported a little bit in the media, but it was more along the lines of, oh well, ain't payback a bitch. You know, this is obviously what those Serbs deserve, just for happening to live in Kosovo. Today, any Serbs that remain in Kosovo need to stay in armed, protected compounds because it's not safe for them just to be citizens in that country. What was interesting about this period in history, and very forgotten, is that very anti-war, formerly anti-war, members of the Labour Party here in Britain, like Claire Short, Robin Cook, George Robertson, John Prescott, they roared on this invasion of Kosovo. They had been against the first Gulf War and they were cheering on this war. It's easy to have principles when you're in opposition and that lended legitimacy to the war. But more importantly, when Tony Blair went to Kosovo and was surrounded by Albanians who were delighted, delighted that NATO intervened on their behalf. This was the beginning of empowering his ego to continue to take this conflict to Afghanistan and Iraq after 9-11. He'd already been praised for being an interventionist. So this episode in Kosovo legitimated interventionism in the mind of Tony Blair as a way of gaining acclaim. It is reported that Madeleine Albright said the Serbs need a good bombing and they're going to get one. And while that claim cannot be substantiated, in light of her saying that the price that the death of 500,000 Iraqi children was worth it later on, I think we can believe it. I don't mean to continue with the entire history of Western foreign policy following those two episodes because so much has been said about it already. I want to talk about the fact that as we've become less moral abroad, 
we've become less free at home. In 1984, George Orwell explained that the purpose of war is the destruction of human labour without which a hierarchical society cannot continue to exist. He portrayed the war as not meaning to be won. Despite the spirited declarations of our leaders, the war was meant to be fought forever to the end of helping the government oppress its own people. For my entire lifetime, probably your entire lifetime, we've seen an endless parade of wars that were declared with an indefinite lifespan that could go on forever. The Cold War, the Israel-Palestine conflict, the War on Terror. And that's not even to mention pseudo-wars like the War on Poverty, the War on Drugs, War on abstract concept. It's something that can go on forever. When the Iraq war, the most recent Iraq war, began to turn sour, some people thought that as soon as they could possibly get out of there without looking like a bunch of idiots, they would. But we're still in Iraq, 13 years later. An estimate of the numbers of deaths, the estimates range between 151,000 and a million. And in light of that, it might seem a little bit crass to talk about how much money the wars cost, right? But if George Orwell is right, the essential act of war is the destruction of human labour, without which a hierarchical society cannot continue to exist, then it's important to talk about. And money can save lives too. To us, that cost has been £4.5 billion. To the Americans, maybe over 1.1 trillion in dollars. And that's only half of the cost. Remember, the destruction of human labor. The other half is everything that was not accomplished and created by those fighting the war and producing armaments for the war. The other half of the cost is rebuilding everything that's been destroyed by dropping those bombs, by spending $1.1 trillion in destroying things. After 13 years, we're still in Iraq. Most people assume that the war is meant to be won, that our leaders want to win the wars. But it might be useful to just imagine the world through a more sceptical lens. In 1984, the war was used by the ruling class to oppress their own people by keeping their eyes pointed overseas. If eroding the time-honoured values that have made us free, the ones that I recounted at the beginning of this podcast, has not been the intention of these wars. It's certainly been their consequence. So it might be worthwhile to wonder, are these wars meant to be won? Are they meant to be fought forever? Despite worship from conservatives, and I have to say a number of libertarians, it was the Thatcher administration that began shredding our constitutional freedoms under the pretext of the Cold War and the IRA threat. Police perverted the course of justice to convict people that were innocent of no crimes whatsoever. And then the police were found guilty of no wrongdoing. And you can check out the Guildford Four and the Maguire Seven on Wikipedia for some examples 
of what happened during this period. By the time New Labour had grabbed the reins of power from John Major, <laughs> to all the frenzy of misplaced public optimism that ensued, they actually had the bones of a police state, and they proceeded to flesh it out under the justification of the war on terror. There's a great documentary came out about 2006 or something like that called Taking Liberties, which you can probably watch online, that goes through the suspension of civil liberties under the Blair administration. Now, apart from a couple of embarrassing setbacks, such as their failure to pass 42 days detention without trial, just think about that. I would confess to doing just about anything, potentially, after being detained for 42 days without a trial. And they failed to institute a mandatory ID card. They were remarkably successful at advancing the stripping of our civil liberties and they were largely unopposed by the Tories in opposition. This supposedly left a centre party. More recently, under David Cameron, Theresa May introduced secret courts, forced schools to hand over information on pupils, allowed ministers to veto freedom of information requests, classified non-violent activism as terrorism, condoned detention of journalists under the Anti-Terrorism Act and moved to increase the state's right to surveillance with the Draft Communications Data Bill, which is nicknamed the Snoopers Charter, if you want to look it up. Now she's Prime Minister. She's promising to curtail freedom of speech, monitor the internet, monitor television programmes, vet them before they go on TV in the name of fighting extremism. So we've had our civil liberties stripped under Thatcher in the name of the Cold War and the IRA threat, under Tony Blair, the war on terror, and now Theresa May under what she calls fighting extremism. Another prophetic feature of Orwell's 1984 was the propensity of a nation to turn enemies into allies and vice versa at the drop of a hat with history being rewritten to explain that the new alliance was always so. This was, I don't know if George Orwell predicted this because the Allies turned on the Soviet Union shortly after the Second World War, but we have to say it has been a feature of our foreign policy ever since. I mean, Saddam Hussein was our guy, Gaddafi was our guy, that we trained the Mujahideen to go against the Russians, who then became our enemies, the Taliban. And now, our fingerprints are all over ISIS. By changing allies into enemies and enemies into allies, perpetual war can be sustained. Granted, this has actually become an increasingly difficult trick to pull off since the advent of the internet. But back in 2003, we didn't have access to the kind of information that we have now. The internet was in its relative infancy, and... It's really amazing what the media was able to do. I mean, they played the video of the anti-war activist George Galloway meeting with Saddam Hussein over and over again. But the video, which you can see on YouTube, of Donald Rumsfeld meeting him to sell weapons, conspicuously went down the memory hole. I don't recall it ever being played on television. 
I actually had bookmarked a video on YouTube of Dick Cheney saying, we know they have weapons of mass destruction, we know where they are, we're in the area around Tikrit and Baghdad, back to back with him saying, I never said they had weapons of mass destruction, like the sun never came up this morning. But that video has sadly been taken down off the internet, so I don't know if we're still actually seeing things go down the memory hall. The enemy always changes. The nature of the tactic is the same. War abroad and less freedom at home. Before each extenuation of this war loses its luster, we hear murmurs of some distant spectre, maybe Iran, looming in the wings. Perhaps one day they're going to do us some harm. It's just a murmur at first. And as the support for one conflict wanes, those murmurs get louder and louder. As public support for the war on terror continues to wane and tire it out, we've started to hear murmurs about the Russians. Now they're talking very seriously about Putin. We were hearing murmurs about the Chinese. Now we hear threats of trade wars with China, right? These two nations might next be held up as the threat, and more strongly than ever, it's up to us to make the case that some things are worth fighting for at home rather than abroad. The interventionist mindset is basically about pointing the finger at someone else instead of taking a long hard look in the mirror. The least self-reflective and self-critical amongst us are perfectly at home in the combative, big-talking, finger-pointing system of politics that we've created. It's always someone else. It's never us. It's never me. That's the attitude of a narcissist. That's the attitude of a psychopath. These people who can't look in the mirror and find fault, they project their lack of self-knowledge onto the world and they imagine the crudest tool, which is violence, can solve our problems and build their legacy. Some percentage of the people they take along with them have naively believed that you can just take a Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi out of power and all of a sudden, spontaneously, liberal values will emerge. Liberal values that took hundreds if not thousands of years to develop here in Europe. And then there's a class of people who are just dedicated to the doctrine of perpetual war. And a lot of people who are for every war, for most wars, they're psychologically motivated. They feel under threat, they feel unsafe. And then they look around to try and find a justification for the feeling that they already have. Oh, I feel under threat. So we must, you know, we must go to war abroad to remove that feeling inside. But then when that war has been fought, the feeling doesn't go away. So another war is needed. And then there's just the psychopathic individuals, the Halliburtons of the world and so forth, that actually stand to benefit from either the war or the erosion of civil liberties. We're supposed to be fighting for freedom. Always remember that. I'm not a Christian, but you know, I love that quote from the Bible. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? If war is going to be fought, first and foremost, our leaders need to define exactly what we're going to war for, what success would look like so we know when we've been successful. 
when those aims should be met by. In other words, what the time limit on the war is. Who's responsible for meeting those aims? And what the consequences will be to themselves if those aims aren't met. No one should survive a blunder like Iraq or a quagmire like Afghanistan. We can change the world. There's no question about it. But how we change the world is a product of what we become. You might have met that rare individual who loves what they do and they love what they do so thoroughly that they just inspire other people around themselves to attain their own potential. And then you might have a friend or a relative who is constantly creating conflict and alienates people by constantly preaching what they don't practice. There was a time when all eyes were on America. Foreigners copied their dress and fashion sense, their music and their TV stars. As America has become less free and its imperialist history and crimes have been brought under scrutiny by the internet and the alternative media, its reputation has been tarnished. The liberal tradition is a product of our nation. It's the British tradition. It's the tradition of the Scottish Enlightenment. Do not allow demagogues in power to exploit your or anyone else's well-intentioned impulse to export what's good about the West. In the process, turning us into something which is no longer even worth emulating. Thank you so much for listening and let me know what you think. Follow the Scottish Liberty Podcast on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and please, for the love of peace and freedom, share this on Facebook and send it around your friends. Until next time, be libertarians. Don't be a lefty or a righty. Okay. So much for human enrichment. Today I posted a status to Facebook saying the democratic process merely exists to legitimate oligarchy. What say do we have in anything that matters, such as the bombing of Syria? None. In times of war, when we're powerless to stop the violence, it falls upon us to ask what we can do in our own environment to make the world more peaceful. Can we listen to those in pain? Can we treat ourselves a little kinder? Can we make up with our neighbours? Can you think of one thing that you can do today to make your own life more peaceful? If you can, please, don't let it remain only a thought.